Hello, friends. This is Kent Lapp, and welcome to the podcast. My guest today is Dr. Stephen Reisman. Dr. Reisman practiced in the mainstream medical arena for 10 years after graduating from Boston University School of Medicine, and after seeing and experiencing some of the gaps in that form of practice, launched his own practice in 1991 using his understanding of the demand and effectiveness of a truly integrative, functional, and holistic approach to health and has been practicing in that space ever since. His practice is Mind Body Medical Center in the greater Nashville area, and it was a true privilege to just scratch the surface of his wealth of knowledge in this area of information. So I'll get you right to it. Ladies and gentlemen, please give it up for Dr. Stephen Reisman. Dr. Reisman, how are you? I'm good. I'm doing well. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for being here. Yeah. I was really looking forward to this. Yeah. This is quite a privilege. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah. So tomorrow I noticed you are speaking at an online natural health, what was it called? Online natural health expo. It's actually the title they've chosen is Holistic Made Easy. Holistic Made Easy. Okay. And people can go to holisticmadeeasy.com. Okay. So I was thinking Holistic Made Easy was like their organization, and then the expo was something else. But in any case, if they go to holisticmadeeasy.com, they're going to find it. Exactly. Okay. Fantastic. What are you talking on tomorrow? I'm going to, going to speak on, um, I figured this would be a timely topic, on um, the integrative approach to respiratory and other viral illnesses. Ooh, fascinating. That is a timely topic. The, there is a, I don't know if you knew this, but there's a pandemic going around that apparently spreads through respiratory. Yeah, you know, I read that in the papers somewhere. <laughs> so what, is, uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, wow. Let me think of where to begin. <laughs> so uh, I think what I'd like to emphasize, uh, which I'm emphasizing to all of my patients and anyone who pays attention to me, Um, that viruses are a natural part of our environment, that they are just, you know, in our biology. And the important thing to focus on in the first place is our immune system and the integrity of it, because we are always being exposed to viruses, but we're not always getting sick. So everything we can do and this kind of a time in our history is, to me, a wake-up call for people to get their acts together uh, health-wise. And so I uh, routinely educate people about all the aspects that keep our immune systems strong and functioning well. And that, of course, is what makes the difference between whether people exposed to any virus, including the current COVID-19 situation, whether they don't even know they've been exposed to it because they have no symptoms at all, or whether get, they get mild symptoms, or whether get, they get severe symptoms, end up hospitalized, maybe succumb to the illness. So this broad spectrum of um, vulnerability to the virus, to exposure to the virus, basically is, a, uh, is, is an indicator of uh, the integrity of our immune system. Hmm. Well, and, and aren't we now getting into the differences between a more holistic approach and a more traditional approach to medicine? Traditional being a little bit more, you're sick, take a pill. 
holistic being a little bit more, let's get your body and mind and everything in shape before sicknesses come. That way, when it comes, you can handle it. And there was um, our, we're just kind of getting into this. And so we're, where our YouTube channel is nothing smashing, although, you know, we're getting there, but our most, uh, our most popular video on our YouTube channel is, um, Dr. Uh, Michael major with uh, major family chiropractic in green Hills talking through the terrain theory versus the germ theory. And then, and the germ theory being, you know, stay away from all germs, I guess. And the train theory being more in terms of get your body healthy. That way, when these things come at you, your body can handle it. Mm-hmm. So isn't that sort of, but you, that's not, so much how traditional medicine would view it. Well, that's correct. Um, tradition In traditional medicine, the idea of prevention means things like frequent checkups and vaccinations. Mm-hmm. So uh, in my training and my practice for the past 30 years, uh, that's not my idea of prevention. Prevention yes. is exactly what you just described. Now... The issue is that you saying just what you said, some people listening to this may, and maybe not because of listeners of the podcast, but depends who you would say that to. They would write you off relatively quickly, you know, because there, you know, isn't there this, just this association with people that question anything related to traditional health and you haven't necessarily said you're anti-vaccinations, but but maybe you are, uh, but you're, you're saying, Hey, that can't be the answer to our, to our health in general. Don't, do you, do you run into, um, do you encounter people that tend to write off this holistic thing very quickly? Oh, absolutely. And, um, of course I try to avoid them. Um, but inevitably I am interacting with people who have anywhere along the spectrum of open-mindedness, I will not uncommonly see a patient who comes into my office with a spouse and the patient and the spouse have diametrically opposed views about health. Oh, interesting. So that can be a challenge. Mm -hmm. Um, In the best case scenario, I am successfully shifting the one who is opposed to uh, this approach of strengthening health and doing things uh, along these holistic lines, um, uh, pull, pulling them over to the side of there's a lot we can do that you're not going to learn from mm-hmm. the conventional medical arena. Mm-hmm. When you have, and I'm sort of laughing at that because that was my wife and I. So the reason we're having this discussion and the reason I'm interested in holistic health was because she started wearing on me about 14 years ago when we got married and introduced me to some ideas that quite honestly at the time I thought were pretty absurd. Like, and I know this isn't holistic health, but an example is having a baby, our baby at home. Well, I'm thinking, you know, I'm coming from the side of things where you have your babies in a hospital and you do get vaccinated and your lunches are prepackaged PB and J's. And if you get sick, you go a little bit more to the hospital. That's a little bit unfair to my mom. I mean, that's a, but you know, it's along those lines and she was a single mom and she, and she did a great job raising us. But so then I encountered my wife, Mariana, who actually came from the Amish community. They're having their kids at home. Mm. Uh, 
they are not going to the hospital at the drop of a hat, you know? And I'm thinking, you know, you want to do, like, if we're going to have our kids at home, what's next? Like, making our own clothes, turning our own butter, homeschooling, you know what I mean? Um, But I saw the value in how she handled our kids from a young age, giving them healthy food, sleep, all of these types of things. So... I encounter that difference in opinion, you know, between, um, between the spouses. So when you encounter that, are you essentially just giving that this, the spouse that might have a different opinion, giving them some time and space and kind of leading them along and kind of them, letting them arrive at, at their own conclusions in time? Or how do you, how do you go about that? So how I go about something like that is, uh, different in every particular situation, um, not uncommonly, the patient has cancer. And so then there's a very serious um, serious uh, issue to deal with because we're talking about a life-threatening illness. Mm-hmm. And both the patient and the spouse are totally interested in the patient getting well, so there's no conflict there. Um, the conflict is, of course... If we do the wrong thing, this patient's life is at stake. So uh, what I attempt to do is come from a place of pure education. And that's really the key to all of these issues is knowledge that is uh, grounded in science and has a broad spectrum of appeal to the different situations. And it's because it's never a one-size-fits-all situation. Um, If we talk about vaccinations or we talk about any approach to any illness or any health situation, we have to consider the population we're speaking of. We have to consider the individual. So um, my patients who come to me, I always see a person as a complete individual. Two people that come to me with the same diagnosis are not going to get the same approach because they have different bodies, different minds, different histories. Everything is always unique, and I think that's the effective way to approach. Mm -hmm. Okay, so a holistic approach to cancer is interesting because this just may be a reflection on my ignorance here, but I would have thought of all of the... Of all of the um, diagnoses, can- cancer is one that is getting the least amount of attention from a holistic standpoint, and that's the one where you got to go do whatever you got to do to eradicate that. What are some holistic approaches to cancer? And this is this is of particular interest to me. I lost my dad to cancer when when I was ten. Mm-hmm. He had Hodgkin's disease. So, and I'm sure it depends on the type of cancer, but I love to hear. So it depends on. Many, many factors. One is the particular type of cancer. One is the stage of cancer, whether it is just beginning or it is an advanced stage, uh, meaning when it makes its way to my doorway. So um, there are um, a wide, wide range of approaches to cancer. And the reason that the word integrative has come down the pike and this is a really good thing, as opposed to alternative or something that implies uh, either or, something that implies some kind of a conflict. Um, There should never be a conflict because the approaches of uh, mainstream medicine can be life-saving, and the approaches that I present can be life-saving, and they can work together. 
And um, this really needs to be our future mm. and, and in the way of integrating. Um, so there are patients of my, who come to me who have advanced cancer. They're already undergoing chemotherapy or radiation or whatever kind of intervention that has been initiated by their conventional uh, doctors. And they come to me because they want other ideas, either to accompany it or to replace it or whatever. And so in every case, there are always things, I think I can use the word always, always things that can improve their outcome, possibly even the difference between survival and not survival. And the reason that is, is fairly simple. In medical training, we learn about, to put it in a simple way, rescuing someone from a disease. So once you have cancer, the, the whole approach in conventional medicine is to eradicate the cancer, but paying kind of no attention to the patient who is housing that cancer. Mm -hmm. It's almost like the cancer is this foreign invader. It has nothing to do with the body chemistry, so we're going to do everything we can to attack the cancer, and hopefully attacking the cancer will not also take the person down who has the cancer. Yes. Well, so uh, when I find, when I have a patient with cancer, which and I, have, I have many, many of them, um, I am looking for a number of things. I'm looking for their nutritional status, of course, their lifestyle approach, um, whether it's their dietary, dietary habits, sources of stress. I'm also looking for burdens on the immune system. So we live as I emphasize to pretty much everyone that comes to my office, we live in a very unusual environment. Our bodies did not evolve in a city. They evolved in a very pristine environment. And so that's what our systems are designed to uh, live in. Mm. Uh, but now we have all of this industrial contamination of the environment, and those are no doubt burdens on the immune system. So some of them are quite specific. Uh, we routinely test patients for toxic metal um, burdens because air, because the um, air and water and soil and therefore food have lead, mercury, cadmium, aluminum, all these different toxic metals. So this is just kind of a, a tiny piece of what we do in order to have this uh, holistic or integrative approach, we focus on all the things that the mainstream medicine is not paying attention to. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's quite unique and different for every single patient, regardless of the diagnosis, regardless of how advanced the illness is. Um, and the interesting thing, which I have loved about um, what I've been doing for 30 years, is that things start to become kind of simple. Some people have chronic infectious illnesses like Lyme or hepatitis or other chronic infectious situations. Other people have cancer. Other people have autoimmune illnesses like lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, Sjogren's, Sjogren's syndrome. Well, there are common denominators in all of these illnesses because the integrity of the immune system is a bottom line. The mm. toxic burden on the immune system is a bottom line. The stresses in the person's life, whether we consider them chemical stresses or psychosocial stresses, those are a bottom line. So these factors um, 
all kind of constitute a foundation for approaching someone with any kind of an illness. Yes. And the patients I see range from extremely healthy people who are working out and they just want to be stronger and have a stronger immune systems and to people who have stage four cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, but the basic principles, which are really kind of so beautiful about the health and the way that the entire um, biological person, psychosocial person, everything that we are is... Um, it's not really a, myst- a mystery of how things are supposed to function in our minds and our bodies. This is not anything we're um, groping around in the dark about anymore. Mm. So when you, you know, say it's not a mystery, do you just mean um, traditional medicine may not be practicing it, but it's fairly obvious the way the human body works best, human body and mind works best, and it's just there for us to do. Is that what you mean by it's not a mystery? Or can you say more about that? Yeah, of course. Um, yes, what you said is correct. What we need to do for ourselves, both in our physical lifestyles as well as our psychosocial lifestyles, those pursuits we need in order to make our lives a celebration of what we are, what it means to be a living human being, those are well known. Mm. Now, if you're going to start with without any of that and just start with a diagnostic label, like this person has lupus, well, mm. so they might, so the approach might be, well, we don't know what causes lupus, but we know how to suppress the symptoms. And so you see, one of the kind of inherent philosophical issues with with mainstream medicine again not being derogatory this is just where where, how things have come down the pike in education science education is that um we we're starting with a disease and working backwards rather than starting with a normal healthy functioning body mind and what has happened along the way such that the system has become compromised Mm -hmm. okay um why is it that traditional medicine is missing some of these obvious holistic approaches, would you say? Is it because they can't be patented and and sold by drug companies? Or do you, is it other things? Is it where they're getting their education? Just wh- why, is, why are they missing some of these obvious um, helpful remedies? So um, to be fair, um, the current status of medical practice has evolved over the past century, we might say, amongst wars and plagues and all kinds of situations where the education has been about rescuing people from these terrible situations. If you're in a war, if you have a horrible disease that that hadn't been learned about prior prior to that. So these situations that have arisen that have called for the intervention of medical doctors are these serious situations. Uh, this is why um, emergency care is one of the greatest things of our time in, in medical practice. People literally being rescued from the jaws of death. That happens all the time. And the problem is that we have not integrated 
the things that are more about sustaining our health and optimizing our health because the medical practice, as I say, has evolved as a response to serious medical crises. Mm. And so that's what we get educated about in medical school. We don't get educated about, you know, vitamins or minerals or enzymes or things like that. We get educated about kidneys are failing, hearts are failing, lungs are failing, you know, things that are like hurry up and call in the medical doctor because this person is is decompensating. Mm-hmm. Okay, interesting. So it's not necessarily like one way is right and the other way is wrong, although sometimes I'm sure that is the case. It's more like the traditional way is focused on this these certain this certain area of the sickness and that's their focus and that's their training. And just by nature of that focus, you don't just don't have it on the things leading up to what got that sickness in the first place. So all of that is true. And uh Another kind of issue that has um, (laughs) made its way into the picture, which you referred to briefly before, is that there are now tremendous financial interests that are intervening and complicating the situation. And uh, I believe that there are um, many people who uh, feel threatened by the entry into the healthcare picture of other forms of intervention that are valid, but they're not taught in medical school mm-hmm. for what I for the reasons I just explained. Mm-hmm. But they are totally valid, and they've been around for centuries or thousands of years, and they're just as valid as they always were. But of course, if someone's having a heart attack, you don't give them B vitamins and vitamin C. Sure. So, you know, it's a matter of, just as I was saying earlier, it's a matter of individualizing a particular person and their healthcare situation and going from there yes. rather than rubber stamping everyone. Yes. I recently watched, uh, I think it's a relatively new documentary called Fantastic Fungi. And um, I watched it on Apple TV and just rented it there. And it's really, really fascinating. And what, you mentioned some, uh, some, some, I guess, holistic or natural treatments for cancer. Well, um, Paul Stamets, are you familiar with Paul Stamets? Yes, I am. Okay. Uh-huh. So his mother, and, and, and you know, they go, they, it's, this pops up in the documentary. It's really amazing. She had advanced form of breast cancer. And was it turkey tail mushrooms that... That healed her? I think that was the one that was used. I always hesitate to say that one particular factor was the whole answer. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, Anyhow, that was fascinating how um, these things that are just growing out in nature can be used to treat something as advanced as that certain type of breast cancer that she had. I mean, it didn't sound like traditional medicine had much hope. Mm. So... um, have you seen that documentary? Have not. I've heard of it, and I'm, I'm planning to see it. But I, I know it's full of fabulous information about just the magic of our environment and the whole arena of mm-hmm. fungi. Yeah, yeah, it's really fascinating. Um, what are some of the? I think we, I think I want to come back to that. But I was also curious before I forget. What are some of the more holistic or natural treatments for? Cancer, and I'm sure it depends on what type of cancer. 
depends, of course, on what type of cancer and the particular stage the person is in with the cancer. And I would never really call the things we do for our cancer patients treatments for cancer, as in, uh, for example, intravenous vitamin C is long well known to have anti-cancer properties, and we have been using those for decades. Um, but I would never make a statement because it would be misleading to everyone that intravenous vitamin C is a treatment for cancer mm. because mm-hmm. that's that's going to mess up the minds of the people who hear that. They're going to mm-hmm. say, oh, well, I'd rather have intravenous vitamin C than chemotherapy. But sure. it's apples and oranges. You cannot. Yeah. Yeah. So um, when we approach um, a patient with cancer... Um, we might put them on uh, detoxification regimens that allow their body to um, unload a toxic burden from the immune system that it's been carrying. So, so a lot of this, especially in our culture, is dietary. Um, as we know, the, the obesity is a major problem, diabetes, hypertension. These are major pretty much epidemics in our country. And so a lot of what we do it has to do with allowing, it's not so much um, like pumping fuel into the immune system because the immune system fundamentally knows how to function hmm. unless we pile all these boulders on top of it with our uh, lifestyles. So um, we, so we often use um, like supported fasting program, nutrient-supported fasting programs. We do quite commonly with a variety of different illnesses. Um, there are a number of different intravenous approaches that are valuable. Uh, a lot of this, uh, again, depends on the particular stage of the cancer. And, uh, some people have come to us after being through lots of chemotherapy and lots of just lots of very um, devastating treatments. And we give them high-powered nutrient infusions with all different vitamins and minerals and antioxidants and things. And the person will become built up because their system had become so depleted. And that can be just a total turnaround. We use uh, intravenous uh, sodium bicarbonate, which everyone knows what that is. It's baking soda. So sodium bicarbonate intravenously um, will... Uh, every Most people, I think, know that it's an alkaline as opposed to a base. If you mix baking soda and vinegar in a glass, it'll foam up because it's an acid and base reacting. So the body tends to be acidic. This kind of normal body chemistry is to be in an acid state, which is why the normal pH of urine is less than 7. It's an acid pH. 6.5 or something around that is a typical healthy pH of the urine. The reason that's healthy is because all of our cells, just like little people, are producing acid waste. And the body, of course, to maintain its own acid alkaline or pH balance, is wanting to get rid of excess acid all the time. And so that's our homeostasis. That's our general way of being alive is the body, just like if we work out a lot and muscles get full of lactic acid and we have sore sore muscles. So lactic acid, that's another form of acid. So our general way of being alive is our metabolism produces acid and our uh, system neutralizes it with different buffering systems. Uh, Perhaps the most important one is the bicarbonate system in the body. 
So all of this to say that when a person is severely ill, they are often more extremely acidic than a healthy person. And uh, I actually had a patient many years ago, he had um, uh, advanced liver cancer, and we gave him actually three different types of IVs. We gave him a nutritional IV, a vitamin C IV, and a sodium bicarbonate IV. And it was after the sodium bicarbonate that he felt the biggest difference. Wow. Because it was neutralizing all the excess acid in his system. Interesting. Now, this is, I should say, this is nothing new in medicine because if you are present at what's called a code blue in a hospital where someone has gone into cardiac arrest, um, there are a number of different ways to intervene. One of those is to give them sodium bicarbonate because the blood is becoming too acidic. So giving people intravenous sodium bicarbonate is, you know, decades and decades old. However, uh, we don't do it in a bolus that is in a, in a rapid push of bicarbonate as you do in a code blue situation. We give people a slow drip of it in a bag of IV solution. And it actually is, it's not only cancer, as you might imagine, as I, I mentioned just now, that um, all disease states tend to produce a more acidic uh, condition, virtually all. Um, and so an intravenous sodium bicarbonate can make a person feel much, much better. Hmm. Now, <clears throat> this is, of course, nothing new in the health industry because a lot of people are drinking alkaline water in an attempt to raise their acid pH in their body to something more alkaline. I don't have a final answer on the effectiveness of drinking alkaline water. There are people who swear by it, and there are people who say it's total bunk. Um, uh, so I don't know. Uh, at times I've suspected that people become very enthusiastic when they learn about alkaline water and they start drinking alkaline water all day long, well, of course they feel better because all of a sudden they're hydrated. All of a sudden they're drinking water, period. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's water. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so anyway, uh, that's the whole, that's the kind of the, back to the, you know, before I get too far astray, we we're talking about approaches to cancer. And so there are different intravenous treatments that are quite valuable. Now, something, now I, I should add that a vitamin C IV, the presumed reason that it's so effective, it's, always, it's already been well proven in research, but um, people have not been thoroughly clear on how it works, um, in particular, conventional medical doctors. And one of the problems we run into, meaning we in my practice, is that <clears throat> vitamin C is traditionally known as an antioxidant. And because oxidation is kind of like the aging process in the body, so people want more antioxidants to, to slow down the aging process. However, if you have cancer, the way that the cancer is being fought with th such things as radiation and chemotherapy is by oxidation, is by oxidizing cancer cells because those cells are more vulnerable to oxidizing influences than our healthy cells, which is why a person gets mm -hmm. chemotherapy, the tumor suffers more than the healthy cells. Mm -hmm. However, <clears throat> uh, it has been known for a long, long time, since the 50s, I would say, um, that if you give people high doses of vitamin C intravenously, it does no longer have an antioxidant effect. It has an oxidant effect. 
It has an oxidizing effect, and that's um, presumed to be the mechanism by which it is an anti-cancer agent and a general cleansing agent. It's also used for viral illnesses, multiple sclerosis, all different um, illnesses are helped by doing a high-dose vitamin C IV. And the uh, presumed reason is that when vitamin C enters the bloodstream in high doses, it forms hydrogen peroxide. And so, of course, peroxide, everyone knows, is a disinfectant, is an, is an oxidizing substance. Now, what also is um, part of our ammunition, so to speak, is something related, which is using intravenous ozone. Now, ozone, uh, which is O3 rather than O2, O2 is the oxygen in the air that we breathe. O3 <clears throat> is ozone, which is kind of like a hyperoxygen molecule um, for that it's dangerous to breathe in ozone, but ozone is uh, commonly used in uh, disinfecting buildings. Ozone is quite commonly used in, in the industry in industries because that's such a powerful um, disinfectant of all different types of um, uh, microorganisms. But what we can do is, um, and this has also been around for decades, we can put ozone into the bloodstream, which also uh, has this tremendous oxygenating, hyper-oxygenating power. And that is something we use as well. And then um, a third item that, uh, and all of these things, as you're probably aware, are not nearly well known about. You don't, mm -hmm. You're not going to see TV commercials for these things right. amongst the pharmaceutical commercials. Yeah, you're not going to see vitamin C IVs advertised on your TV set. Yep. But anyway... The uh, third item is that I want to mention is something called ultraviolet blood irradiation. Now, this has been around for 60 or 70 years because it used to be used before antibiotics were developed. And it's quite a simple and thoroughly safe procedure. Uh, in ultraviolet blood irradiation, we withdraw maybe about two ounces of someone's blood, and we run it through a machine that blasts it with ultraviolet light, which purifies and energizes this um, fraction of the person's blood, and then we infuse it back into the person's system. Wow. And just real quick, two ounces, how much would that be? Would that like fill this pen? No, it's more than that. It's uh, okay. two uh, ounces. Well, a, a glass is eight ounces, so it's a quarter of that. Yes. Okay. So this is 16 ounces. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Wow. That's fascinating. Yeah, not much. Yeah. Um, and we have specifically found ultraviolet blitter radiation to be powerful against viruses. Uh, I, I had a, a young man with um, mono, is what people call infectious mononucleosis, which is an Epstein-Barr infection that <clears throat> often occurs young people. And this, this boy was about, I don't know, 18 or 19. And his father brought him in, and he was pretty listless just from exhaustion. And uh, at least when I was growing up in, in medical school, mono means you stay home for weeks or months because you can't get out of bed. You're just uh, wiped out. So we treated this young man with ultraviolet blood irradiation, and he just popped up. It was really, it was, it was, it was wonderful. So... Um, 
these different treatments I'm speaking about, whether it's intravenous vitamin C or ozonating the blood or ultraviolet blood irradiation, they have such broad spectrum uses because of viruses and bacteria and cancer cells and all these things that are susceptible to an oxidizing influence. And this is actually the way the body works. Inside a cell are these little... So a cell uh, has a number of uh, bodies in it called organelles, just like a body has organs and a cell has organelles. It's like a mini mini person is a cell. Mm -hmm. So one of the organelles in a cell is a lysosome. And a lysosome is a little bubble in the cell that uh, produces hydrogen peroxide in order to kill things that are threatening the life of the cell. So hydrogen peroxide is like the most natural, original way for biological systems to, hmm. pro- to protect themselves. Hmm. Um, uh, we used to uh, use intravenous hydrogen peroxide. It was actually used commonly around the country by integrative doctors until uh, the FDA outlawed it. Um, I don't have any idea what that was about or any justification for it, but I know that that's true because you can no longer get it. Hmm. But the good news is that uh, high-dose vitamin C uh, creates peroxide in the bloodstream. Interesting. Because of the way it interacts with the blood or it just has, because of the high level of vitamin C, it has that same effect as hydrogen peroxide? Um, oh, no. It actually creates peroxide in the blood. I see. It doesn't okay. have parallel. It's, it's creating peroxide. And I see. Now, I don't know if anyone has all of the details down as to all the different ways that high doses of vitamin C in the bloodstream are effective because they're really kind of um, powerful in their effects. And um, although, as I say, there's so much research over decades of treating viral illnesses or all different illnesses with it, um, the details of all the different ways that it may be benefiting are probably not worked out completely. Mm, Interesting. Now, do I have it correct that too high a level of vitamin C can create, um, what is it, kidney stones? Is that a thing Uh, or no? So in a certain very small percentage of the population, um, vitamin C can promote the formation of kidney stones. Um, For the past probably 25 years, I've been uh, administering my nurse's technically, have been administering high doses of vitamin C to my patients. And I think we've seen one, maybe two times when it uh, seemed to promote the formation of a kidney stone. But mm-hmm. we, we, we use it routinely week in and week out, and we just don't see that problem. Okay. And so that has more to do with the person themselves and less to do with, oops, we gave um, that person too much vitamin C. Oh, right. It's nothing like that. It's, oh, it's interesting. Nothing so about it, the dose. It's not about the dose of the vitamin C. No. Oh, okay. I thought that it was. It's about the person and their reaction to it. Their particular body chemistry. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Fascinating. And so vitamin C, you're going to hook that up. Um, that's, that's a delivered through an IV. Correct. And how long does that take to, to kind of pump the amount of vitamin C that you would, you would want 
That would depend on the, the amount of vitamin C because all vitamin C infusions do not have the exact same amount. Uh, we generally start on the lower side, but the lower side, we're speaking now, if someone buys a vitamin C capsule or tablet in the store, they're going to get something like 500, maybe 1,000 milligrams at the most in a pill, 1,000 milligrams. Um, the lowest we would ever start someone would be about... 50,000 milligrams. Wow. That is so much. Yeah. But you would never... 25 grams. Yeah. You would never have someone take like 50 pills of vitamin C. It's not possible. It's not tolerable by the digestive tract. I see. So this is, I mean, the um, the big advantage of using not only vitamin C, but everything else we do intravenously is that it bypasses the digestive tract, which accomplishes a few things. One, it totally gets rid of any possibility of of upset, of stomach upset or intestinal upset because nothing's going into the digestive tract. Second of all, the nutrients are going directly into the bloodstream and directly into the cells. So there is not this processing of digesting it and absorbing it and assimilating it. The whole process of getting nutrition into our cells, well, all that is bypassed because it's right into the bloodstream, Mm -hmm. which is why so many different um, items, vitamin C, sodium bicarbonate, B vitamins, trace minerals, all all different um, uh, biological agents can be used so effectively intravenously. Mm. And so, and it's so different from taking things by mouth. Fascinating. And then what is a higher dose of vitamin C? Because you uh, said that was a lower dose, right? Or well, kind of we, a beginning dose? Yeah. And actually, sometimes we might start lower than that with... Um, now, we use vitamin C not only by itself, but also as part of a multi-nutrient um, cocktail, we, as we call it. Um, and that, in that case, we would probably only include perhaps um, 5,000 or 10,000 milligrams as part of a whole bunch of other nutrients. I see. But once we're treating with the attempt of, uh, of the effects of high-dose vitamin C, we would probably start with... Um, as I mentioned, uh, 25 grams, and then gradually go up. I don't think we've ever gone higher than 100,000 milligrams. 100,000 milligrams. Uh, yeah, 100 grams. Right? 100 grams. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. Okay, got it. Yeah. That's, that's still so much. That's, that's fascinating. Right. Is there any... Um, is Have you had any experience with vitamin C intravenous vitamin C helping with things like really bad allergies? Uh, We would not use it in that scenario because there are other things that are... um, uh, So now that you're... Thank you for the cue. We'll talk about allergies. Mm -hmm. Um, There's something else that is far, far too um, unknown in, in our culture and probably the world. Back uh, about, I don't know, maybe in the mid-50s, there was a, f- a very, very brilliant allergist in England. Um, I can't think of his name. But he uh, invented a source of desensitizing um, people to allergens in which he took tiny, tiny amounts of every biological item in the entire Western Hemisphere 
tiny amounts of that, mixed it together, and added an enzyme to activate it, and injected like one milliliter, a tiny amount, under the skin in order to desensitize people. And he had dramatic successes. Um, yeah, it was, it was called EPD, Enzyme Potentiated Desensitization. That was its original name, I believe. Well, it made its way to this country uh, quite a while back. It's now known as LDA, low-dose allergens. And the reason it's given that name is, is because of how it's distinguished from what people know as allergy shots. Allergy shots are pretty large doses of whatever the offending agent is um, in order to desensitize the person. So, and I believe, now I've never been in a traditional allergy practice, but I believe allergy shots are given on a regular, fairly frequent basis, like every week or more than, more than once a week. LDA, low-dose allergen immunotherapy, um, as I mentioned, uses a tiny, tiny amount of everything you can react to in the entire Western Hemisphere, activated by an enzyme and injected subcutaneously under the skin. And what it does is it desensitizes the white blood cells that carry the programming for what you react to in the environment. And it doesn't matter if it's trees or pollens or dogs or dust mites or oranges or potatoes, doesn't matter what it is. So um, because white blood cells have a half-life of approximately eight weeks, that's how often we do the injections. It's about, mm -hmm. one, it's about once every two months because as a new generation of white blood cells is formed, we are now hitting them with the desensitization. Now, some people uh, who undergo this treatment um, report dramatic improvement, as in now they no longer have allergy symptoms after the first treatment. That's not the most common approach. And we... Uh, some people will come back every two months for a number of a number of months. Um, pretty much, if no one, if if a particular patient is not getting any response to it after about a year, we're probably not going to continue it. But okay. it might it might take. It's it's generally thought that six treatments, which would be one year, um, would pretty much either make make the difference or prove itself not not happening. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And again, you're giving this same injection for everyone, no matter what their allergy, particular mm. allergy is? Almost. There are a few variations. So there's one solution for food substances, one solution for airborne substances, and then there is a third one um, for people who are sensitive, not necessarily to the typical airborne substances such as trees and pollens and things like that, but people who are very sensitive to smells or fumes. So there are people who cannot go into a department store because there are all these perfumes at the cosmetic mm. counter and people who, if they smell gasoline fumes, these are people who will, will immediately be, get headaches or sickness or something because they're sensitive to wow. fumes. So there's a, a third solution for that population. We pretty much give all three to everybody because it's totally harmless and it's highly effective. Do you do this at your practice? Yes. Oh, oh wow. We have been doing it for years. Yeah. Oh yeah? Yeah. Uh -huh. Um, 
man, I have a couple friends that are just hammered by allergies. Mm-hmm. It's so bad. Um, mine were bad up until this last year, and I'm not sure what changed. And by bad, I just mean spring and fall, can't go outside a few days where, you know, eyes are itchy and runny and just, it's just, you're stuck inside, you know, and hating life <laughs> and everyone's outside enjoying the spring and fall, right, yeah. but it's only for a few days, but for whatever reason, the last year that's sort of gone away. Mm-hmm. Um, the, um, so they can get that at your practice, but of course, from people outside of Nashville listening to this, is that something they could Google and see if there's anyone local in their town or city that administers that type oh, of a thing? That's a great question. What anyone should do hearing this broadcast, if they're not around here, is um, I think the website is drschrader.com. So this is the gentleman I mentioned, the doctor who brought this to this country from England. He's st- he's still living, um, William Schrader, S-H-R-A-D-E-R. And he his uh, website, he's in New Mexico, I think in Santa Fe. And his website has a list of all the doctors around the country who are doing LDA. Oh, okay. That's cool. Immunotherapy. Yeah. Okay. Uh And that's what it's called, LDA immunotherapy. Mm -hmm. Okay. And how effective have you found it? I don't know if this is a a question that medical professionals um, (laughs) like or not. Yeah, I know where we're going. (laughs) If you had 10 people walking in with, you know, fairly extreme allergies, um, what would you expect them of the 10? How many would you expect this to significantly improve their allergies? Oh, I would say most. Um, it's, you know, it's not only, I should uh, not to evade the question, but there are also people who have inflammatory type illnesses that are um, environmentally triggered, like asthma. And we've seen some dramatic improvements in asthma patients. Um, because anything that's triggered by an environmental exposure, a food substance or an airborne substance, that's triggering the white blood cells to react and create the symptoms. Well, that's something that's going to be susceptible to this type of approach. Mm. Um, but I would also say that uh, I am all, quite frequently um, asked questions about our rate of success with any particular situation. So someone will come to me with stage 3B esophageal cancer and they'll say, oh, well, what's your success rate with stage 3B esophageal cancer? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I don't have the capacity uh, of a research institute and um, I feel great about all the good things we see in our patients improving, um, but I don't have statistics. Sure, sure. Um, The... Vitamin C thing was interesting. Are you familiar with Hopewell Family Care, Jamie Royal? Have you heard heard of her? She's uh, in uh, uh-huh. Hermitage. Yeah. She's been doing that. Um, she's been our kind of uh, family nurse practitioner for years, and she's just been really, really great. And um, But I noticed in the last few years that she's doing a lot more of that vitamin C thing as well. Is uh-huh. that something that you would recommend for um, almost anyone like even if someone is relatively healthy, but they would just like to boost their immune system, is that a viable option? Or how about people with more autoimmune issues? Is that a good option that they could should consider as well? Well, um, 
not to sound like a broken record, but when we see a patient with any particular diagnosis, autoimmune, for example, um, we there are a number of considerations, and um, I would I would say that you have absolutely nothing to lose and possibly everything to gain from using intravenous vitamin C for a chronic illness. Um, but that's not to say that that would be the very first thing I would be doing. Okay, sure. Um, back to the, um, the level of acid in urine. That's interesting. You mentioned about six and a half. Um, and, and again, what was the, the, the measurement there? So the, pH the, the, runs from one to 14. One okay. is ex, extreme acid. 14 is extreme alkaline. And the pH of the blood, for example, is about 7.4, might be 7.41, I don't know. Okay. But the, um, the priority of the body, by the way, this is to me just fascinating and inspiring how the, how the whole human organism works. Um, the body is like a battery, that has a plus and minus pole, like a flashlight battery, except in body language, one of the poles is acid and the other is alkaline. And if you don't have those balanced, then you are not going to be long for this world. But Hmm. the body is so incredibly equipped with systems to maintain that pH that it will do anything to do that, to accomplish that. So for example, if the bloodstream starts to become too acidic and the tissues start to become too acidic, the body will pull alkaline minerals out of wherever they're stored up to neutralize that excess acid. So now where do you think the alkaline minerals in the body are stored? Oh, I have no idea. The bones. <laughs> oh. Calcium, magnesium. Oh, wow. Calcium, magnesium are the powerful alkaline minerals, which is why so many people have osteopenia and osteoporosis, because they are, our bodies are too acidic. The body says, in the body's own words, so to speak, um, I don't care if I have no bones, but I want to stay alive. Wow. And it pulls that the, yep. the, the alkaline value out of your bones. Calcium, magnesium pulls them out to neutralize wow. the excess acid. And so you end up with thin bones. Wow. So yeah. if people are drinking coffee and soft drinks and foods that are promoting acidity in the body. Um, uh, animal products are all acid forming. Oh, yeah? Yeah. So if you're going to have like, you know, eggs and coffee for breakfast and maybe chicken sandwich and a Coke for lunch and maybe, um, you know, a steak and another Coke for dinner, Mm -hmm. acid, 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 and acid. Interesting. Okay. So let me ask you this. I offered you an espresso before the show, um, (laughs) but this is, and, and that's largely what I drink now. I have just a, an, an espresso in the morning and one in the afternoon. But right now I'm, I'm drinking a cup of black coffee from the coffee shop across the street. And um, I don't drink much coffee anymore, although I'm, I, I'm enjoying this. But this is on a relatively empty stomach. And, and it feels, when I drink coffee in the afternoon, without fail, it feels a little bit acidic in my stomach. And oh. there's no, I don't know, it sounds like maybe that's actually what's happening. And yeah. I don't know what acid's supposed to feel like, but that's what it feels a little bit like. Mm-hmm. Um, that's because coffee is acidic. Is that is that what's going on here? Well, it creates acidity in the body. Um, so I, I don't know that much about the chemistry of coffee mm-hmm. because I'm just interested in health. And yeah. So I know that it has an acidifying effect on body chemistry. Okay, interesting. So 
So let me give you this other bit of information before I ask the question, which is that I've been on the carnivore diet since April. Mm. So I only eat um, red meat and eggs. <laughs> yeah, lots <laughs> and, of people and, are and doing yogurt. that. Yeah. Um, but then I'm also having two Nespresso's a day. So it sounds like I am pumping a lot of um, things into my body that's creating an, a high level of acid. Now, in defense of what I'm eating, I feel better than I've ever had. I just got blood work done. I'm I'm the healthiest, at least per the blood work, um, than I've been in four years. So it's sort of working for me. And I understand this is probably different for different people. But is there something that I should be doing to um, give my body more, I don't know what you call it, a more more alkaline or something so that my body is not robbing my bones of alkaline, which doesn't sound like a good thing to have happen. That's correct. And you are amongst, I don't know how many millions of people who feel better when they get on an animal product diet. Uh, There's a famous doctor named Robert Atkins who's passed away now, but he wrote books and the Atkins diet was very, very famous for a number of years. And the whole idea was cut out all the carbohydrates and and you'll be healthier. And um, I think that at best is um, something of very short-term value. Okay. Um, however, in the long run, this will not be a good thing for your body and you, you won't immediately... You can probably go for a, a quite a while on a purely animal product diet and and be okay without noticing anything. You'll probably feel better because you're having difficulty processing uh, carbohydrates, um, and so it it is uh, something that is appreciated and it's functional on a temporary basis. Um, our bodies uh, are not designed to uh, feed on an animal product diet. Our bodies are most similar to our most, uh, our nearest uh, evolutionary relatives. And I'm often, when, when I attempt to bring into someone the um, uh, idea of moving towards plants rather than animals, the first question I get is, well, where am I going to get protein from? Mm-hmm. Now, in my estimation, our nation has an obsession, if not a brainwashing, about protein, about more protein is better and carbohydrates are bad. If carbohydrates are defined as refined sugars and soft drinks, well, of course, that's terrible. Right. Um, however, that's really not the total definition of carbohydrates, mm-hmm. as many of us know. And um, so... Uh, I've lost my train of thought. Uh, uh, a protein and ah, brainwashing a protein and so forth. Thank you. So um, people are routinely telling, um, asking where they're going to get protein from. The protein needs of the body are not nearly what people think they are. Uh, thinking about how many grams of protein you need. I've, I've never just, you know, I'm only one person. I've never measured grams of protein in my diet in the last 67 years. Um, so... Um, our protein needs are minimal. And when a person asks me that, I immediately ask them, so let's look at some of the biggest, strongest animals on the earth. Elephants, rhinoceroses, gorillas. Well, where are they getting their protein? They're not eating any animals. Mm-hmm. They're not eating eggs for breakfast. They're not, you know, not doing any of that stuff. And they have the, they're the biggest, strongest, most muscular creatures on the planet. Mm-hmm. So this whole thing about... 
animal products for protein is complete myth. Um, on that note, are you aware of a documentary on Netflix called The Game Changers? I was just going to ask you about it. Yes, I am. Yeah, I've seen it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Great. yeah. It's fascinating. Yeah. Fascinating. And it's great that it's exposing the truth about, mm-hmm. about this exact, exact topic. Yeah. But we don't, I don't want to um, forget about your original question because you feel well on what you're eating. Um, I think that a great, great majority of us have intolerance of carbohydrate foods because of the condition of our guts. That's me. Our digestive tracts are not tolerating carbohydrates, and so we're kind of doing an end run around that and saying, oh, well, I'll just eat no carbohydrates and then I'll feel okay. Except that's not ultimately a health-promoting lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's important and as you might imagine, um, the gut health of my patients is a, is a topic of every single conversation I have with them. Um, it's just so essential. And as many people have heard these days, it's so great that all the things that are coming to light, um, the, uh, uh, organisms and the entire, um, chemistry of our digestive tracts have been called the second immune system. So, um, that is so essential in strengthening the immune system to come back to where we began. And mm. the immune system requires, absolutely requires a healthy gut environment. Uh, many, if not all, of the autoimmune illnesses are likely the result of either toxins or infectious organisms that are getting absorbed from the digestive tract into the bloodstream and depositing themselves in different parts of the body. Mm. Now, this was shown beautifully many years ago by a doctor named McPherson Brown, who was treating people with rheumatoid arthritis. So as you probably know, rheumatoid arthritis is an autoimmune illness where the immune system is attacking the joints. Mm -hmm. So what Dr. Brown Um, attempted is to give people just very low doses of antibiotics on the presumption that there are bacteria in the joints and that's why the immune system is attacking there, not Mm -hmm. because there's something wrong with the cells, just that they have bacteria in them. Well, lo and behold, this is his rheumatoid arthritis patients got well. And uh, I've treated a number of rheumatoid arthritis patients that way as well. Um, It's really quite wonderful to do that and um, keep them away from the powerful steroids and immunosuppressants and the other drugs that are are usually used. But that is just one example um, of this whole mechanism of autoimmune illness in which there is some type of toxicity or infectious agent that is actually lodged into some cells in the body and then when the immune system police come along looking for what doesn't belong in the body, they start attacking our own cells. Now, mm-hmm. the immune system is not making a mistake. So if you go and suppress the immune system, that's kind of like pulling the police out of the neighborhood that's full of criminals. Yeah. That doesn't really, it's not really going after the root of the problem. Mm-hmm. The root of the problem, as I'm saying, is some kind of toxicity or infectious agent in the cells that make the cells look foreign to the immune system. So a perfect example of this is something that's known by, I think, rather more and more people these days, which is called Hashimoto disease. Yes. Hashimoto disease is a thyroid 
problem, but it's not your typical thyroid problem. Uh, the thyroid's dysfunction in Hashimoto disease is due to the immune system attacking the thyroid cells. And when the thyroid cells happen to be the ones absorbing whatever kinds of agents or toxins are coming from the digestive tract, those are the cells that draw attack from the immune system because they look foreign. And uh, my patients tell me that when they've been to their endocrinologist, they've been told that well, if you have Hashimoto disease, that's it, you just have it for life. And I've seen a number of patients who's, uh, who have no longer have Hashimoto disease because we measure it quite easily. It's, uh, you measure the antibodies that are formed by the immune system to attack the thyroid cells. And mm -hmm. so we routinely measure those antibody levels. And when people get their health picture in general in better shape and their immune system stronger and their diets in order and all the things that it takes, we watch those, um, those antibody levels drop and drop until they're back in the normal range. Mm. But you see, this is unheard of in conventional medicine. Sure. Uh, reversal of, of many illnesses is unheard of in conventional medicine. Yes. So... Um, I think that's really, I mean, I think this is really a key thing to make people aware of uh, in order to have them feel empowered. And that's actually what I gain most from having the medical practice I have, because it's a form of empowering people. I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure. It must, it must, there must be a high level of satisfaction um, on a routine basis in your profession, it would seem to me. Mm -hmm. um, if someone's body is not feeling good on carbs. So for me, um, it's pasta, bread, um, mm. what else? Um, <laughs> like noodles, those types of things, of course. Yeah. Um, here, here's the truth of the matter. I love a good salad. I mean, it's, I, I would eat greens if like, if it didn't make me feel bad, I love greens. I have no, I'm not like doing this because I, oh, I also love meat, but, but I, I love greens and I love pasta too, by the way. I just feel really bad on it. Um, it sounds like you're saying what well, you mentioned, um, that's because they have some gut issues. And of course, sure. In the short term, you can feel better by just sticking to say meat and cutting out the carbs, but it doesn't sound like that's what you'd want to see that person do long term. So how can they heal that gut and, uh, and be able to get that gut in a position where they can process carbs properly, Pro good carbs properly. Right. So, um, let me think if I can get all the different um, things I wanted to say in response to everything that you just said. <laughs> so the, first you began speaking about um, breads and pastas. Now, uh, many people these days, as you probably know, believe that they are gluten sensitive. Gluten is a part of wheat. Um, I think a lot of people who feel they are gluten sensitive are actually wrong. I would say most of them are wrong. And then they will say to me, well, how can I be wrong? I eat, I eat wheat, I feel terrible. I don't eat wheat, I feel fine. Well, it's because if those people would travel to Italy or France or Germany or any other country and eat pasta and bread, they'd feel fine. Really? I hear this over and over from my patients. That is interesting. Well, it's interesting, but it's also a little bit sad. The wheat crop in this country is pretty much not fit for human consumption. Oh, 
that's insane. Yeah. That's crazy. It's not a gluten sensitivity. It's a it's it's either the genetic distortion of the wheat or the pesticides on the wheat. I don't know what it is, but I know that people go 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 overseas and they can eat wheat. They're fine. Hmm. So that was the first thing that came into my mind as you were speaking about the foods you don't tolerate. Um, so first we have to get the common um, intolerances out of the diet. And what I routinely tell people to do is remove from, this is from the plant food world, remove wheat, corn, soy, and peanut products. Wheat, corn, soy, and peanut are probably the most notorious of the plant foods for causing sensitivity. Now, this brings up a kind of a complicating issue because if the animal products you're eating are from animals that were raised on corn and soy, you're going to react to those as well. Yes. So, um, so there's a lot of, as you might imagine, a lot of dietary education that takes place uh, in my office. So uh, you also mentioned um, that you like salads. If you eat a salad by itself, will you have difficulty? Uh, yes and no. Um, I would like to eat another one, just a salad, and see how I feel. That is not the most common thing that triggers my gut. Um, and a good example was green beans. I'm As I'm starting to eat meat, I'm starting to make my own food, and I'm kind of enjoying that process because I was never good in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. And so a couple of weeks ago, I, I wanted to make some really good green beans. And man, they were really, really good. It was fun making them, but they made me feel a little upset. But um, it might have been the pesticides on them, too. Could have been. <clears throat> Another possibility, and this is what came to my mind when you, when you mentioned salads, is that there are many people who, and we can get into the different reasons for this, who do not have the enzyme power to break down the food. Now, the most common uh, example of this is people who eat beans and produce excessive gas. Mm. And that's... Probably fairly common, but it's one example of a bigger issue, which is all the different types of enzymes in the digestive system that may be deficient. Mm. Now, in our uh, current uh, culture, uh, there's all kinds of stress from people's lives, in people's lives, from all kinds of things, whether it's politics or the pandemic or jobs or families or whatever. Stress will disempower the digestive system. Um, Our bodies have two ways, two kind of extremes of their functioning in a part of the body called the autonomic nervous system, which is something we're not in control of. And um, we can be either in this fight, I think we would call it fight, flight, or freeze state when we're stressed out and like deer in the headlights type of thing, or we're in the opposite state, which is a resting, digesting, uh, building tissue, kind of a healing state. And so stress can keep us out of that state so much of the time that we might be able to chew food and swallow it. But once it gets down into our digestive tract, it's not getting burnt up, so to speak, as Mm. it needs to be. And so um, different forms of digestive enzymes can be very, very effective for many, many people to help with that. Interesting. But that's not 
really, I mean, of course, it's valuable, it's not toxic, it's very helpful. But we have to also think about the root of that. Why is the digestive system, what is it about the stress that is keeping the digestive system from doing its work, from producing the enzymes and processing food? And that gets down to uh, this most important pair of glands in our body called the adrenals. Now, the adrenal glands are kind of like our batteries. And when we are asleep at night in deep, restful sleep, our batteries are getting recharged. So life is, we might say, uh, forgive these words, life is meant to be stressful. Mm. Life is just stressful inherently. Mm -hmm. But but ideally, we would get deep sleep at night, and then we're ready for the next day. But if, if sleep is not happening, then our batteries are not getting recharged and we're spiraling downward. Mm-hmm. And so we're remaining more and more of the time in a fight or flight state and we're not having the digestive power, which comes from the batteries, from the adrenals. We don't have the digestive power to process our food and then we become sensitive, so to speak, to foods. Mm-hmm. But it's not, of course, necessarily... The foods, so this is like the other side of the coin. We spoke a moment ago about the foods that are actual problems. Then there's the other half of the issue with the body's tolerance of food that actually is healthy, and the body is still not functioning properly. Sure, that makes sense, of course. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. and um, I take a digestive enzyme um, every night with dinner, Hmm. and it seems to help. I don't don't know. Um, Going back to Game Changers, that documentary. Mm Mm-hmm. Are you um, are you vegetarian or vegan? Do you promote that? What are your thoughts on that documentary? Um, I think the documentary is an absolutely wonderful um, piece of education for the general public. Um, I personally, I hesitate to say this because I don't want to scare people away from coming to see me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I should tell you that I don't um, enforce a particular diet on any person. That would be pretty... Um, counterproductive. Uh, as many people know, you have to start where you are. Mm. So if someone comes into me who's eating fast food day and night, I'm not going to say, okay, you have to start eating carrots and celery and nothing else. But myself, um, I've been primarily a plant eater uh, for most of my adult life. And a few years ago, I decided, I think it was summertime a few years ago, and I decided, you know, there's all this wonderful produce and all this wonderful food we have available in our country. We're not scraping out to try to find good food. It's all over the place. So I, I became a strict vegan. Oh, yeah? Yep. Okay. Yeah. And, that, and you've been a strict vegan for a few years? Yep. Okay. Love it. Interesting. Work You've, out at the Y, have, have all the energy. It's, it's just, you know, it's just great. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Uh, I mean, you look very healthy. Thank you. Yeah. And um, uh, the, so I'm assuming then you complement with a little bit of B12 because that doesn't come from your diet then. Is, would that be correct? Uh, well, so first of all, I do not add any B12. Mm. Um, and I've found from other people who are on vegan diets, um, that's... For some reason, that's they're not running into that problem. Now, I will add to that that there are certain sources of B12 in the plant world. Um, hmm. One, I guess they're called plants. One is algae. So people have often um, taken as a kind of a nutritional supplement something like spirulina or chlorella. Um, 
those are sources of B12. Um, I will think there are two others. Oh, one is nutritional yeast. Nutritional yeast is a wonderful supplement as far as giving us B vitamins. And of course, these are B vitamins that are not in pill form. This is something that is part of an organism. So it's a very Mm. natural um, source of a vitamin substance. And the other is, um, I believe, nori, the, uh, the dark green seaweed that's wrapped around the rice if you get sushi. Oh, okay. I'm pretty sure nori is a source of B12 as well. I see. Now, I don't purposely go after yeast and nori and whatever else yep. I said. Yep. <laughs> I, don't, I don't seek those things out. Um, yep. But I think that the um, fear of lack of B12 is about as you know valid as the fear of not enough protein. Oh, interesting. Okay, fascinating. I mean, and if it is, so we'll, so we can take a little B twelve supplement. It's just, sure, just not you know, it's not worthy of putting yeah. much emphasis on. Right, and it's easy. I mean, I'm taking a B twelve supplement because uh, my body was a little bit low on that. I'm eating only meat, mm-hmm. um, and algae is um, uh, our daughters, both of them, but particularly Ava, the older one. She loved. You can get these. I don't know if it's dried or air dried or whatever, like these algae chips. Mm-hmm. She will throw that stuff down. She loves it. So, I mean, it's algae may sound like, ooh, that's not something you want to eat, but it's no, kind of tasty. Sure, you're sure you're not speaking about kale chips? No, it's not kale chips. Great. Um, yeah. Because we've gotten those two before. This is this is algae. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, it's not homemade, so we're not scooping this out of a pond and making it ourselves. She gets <laughs> it somewhere. But yeah, it's it's really thin, square algae chips. But you know, it's definitely not kale chips because I know that's a thing too. Yeah. Um, I am curious just to come back just very briefly uh, to my situation with a couple of coffees a day, a ton of water, and meat and eggs and so forth. Um, should I be getting alkaline into my body somehow so my body is not pulling these calcium and other minerals out of my bones? I would probably... So first I should ask about your... Uh, since we're going to make this about you as the patient... Um, <laughs> I then want to ask you about uh, your um, intake of dairy products. I uh, don't like, don't like, um, I don't feel good on milk. I don't particularly care for, for that, oh, except for cheese. And um, I eat a little bit of cheese every day, really. And then that's it, unless I'm going to have some yogurt occasionally. Mm. So... Um, it might be of value to you to take a supplement of a calcium, magnesium, or even calcium, magnesium, and potassium. Those are macro minerals as opposed to trace minerals in the body, and mm-hmm. they are all alkalinizing. Mm. Um, I put people on those quite commonly, along with like other more broad-spectrum bone support formulas. Um, but I don't know if you know you are generally. Uh, healthy and young, and uh, I don't know if you're running into any issues in the short term. I see. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm healthy now. I wasn't last year this time. Um, 2019 was was a extremely challenging year, and I just felt very bad shape. Stress was extremely high, and my body was. I just felt bad all year. I felt sick all year, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, so that ended beginning of this year, and my focus was getting healthy, um, you know, physically and mentally and so forth. And I feel really, you know, on the right track. So I do feel, I do feel healthy now, thankfully. Um, 
Andrew, can you pull up his website? There was something, this is a little bit of a left turn, then click on Our Holistic Approach to COVID-19. You have a great website, by the way. Oh, thank you. And by the way, while I'm thinking, of, think, and scroll down, Andrew, to there's something about respect down there, which I, which I thought was really great. And uh, by the way, doctor, I don't know if you hear this very much, but you have really kind eyes. When you smile, you really smile out of your eyes. Have you heard that before? Uh, Have you had patients yeah, mention that? Possibly. I don't. I generally don't re- retain things like that. <laughs> well, you need to. Thank you. Um, so on your website, this kind of speaks to the holistic, I guess, aspect here. But um, this is under holistic approach to COVID-19. It says communicate respect. Returning to our orientation to living, it is even more powerful to pair our attitude of honoring life with actually expressing it in words. So as we are joyfully doing things that demonstrate our love of life, we may also take full advantage of all our relationships. All the people we encounter, whether we find them supportive or challenging, are parts of our life. There is a difference between respect and approval. To support our immune system, we address all the players that make up our world with respect. It is the entirety of our world that we are respecting, even when we see, when we see parts of it ripe for change. And this is really great. And you know, I, I guess you could, if I were to come up with like a personal set of core values or something, respect would have to be in, in on it. Um, it, um, I've had some residential properties through, through the years and, and, and I got rid of a property manager one time because of the way he talked about tenants. And some mm-hmm. of these properties were, you know, 10 unit, that type of thing. And, and, you know, um, it's not always the most well-to-do people. If you were extremely well-to-do, you're probably not renting one of my apartments. You probably own your house. Well, those, so while they may not all be extremely well-to-do, you, you, they deserve respect and you don't talk down about them. You don't talk poor about them and so forth. You don't make jokes about them. Like people deserve respect. This has always been just sort of a, a thing for me. Good. Um, it's a good thing. Yeah, it is a good thing. Yeah. And, and um, you know, you may come from a more evolutionary kind of viewpoint. I'm coming from a more creationist viewpoint, which all people have dignity. But I think we'd both agree on that. However mm-hmm. we got here, people have dignity. But this is an interesting thing to see on a website about COVID, on a web page about a holistic approach to COVID-19, this idea of respect. Can you say more about this and why this matters from from a health standpoint? Sure. Yeah, I think it's it's really important. As I said a while back in in, in our talk today, um, uh, it's important to live in as a celebration of life. So that's kind of a, a starting point. Now, um, this might be a little unusual, but. If a person wants to begin to be respectful and uh, honoring of everything in their life, then what they must do, and I'll just speak in the first person about myself, what I must do is I must see my entire life as mine. I'm the owner of my life, and um, I am here traveling through this life with all kinds of challenges and all kinds of supportive things. And so the things that are challenging to me, the things that make me frightened or make me angry or make me sad or whatever they make me do, that's still part of my world. So if I want to have a, and this really comes also down to the immune system, 
because what I do with my thoughts and my feelings is going to impact me. And if I'm carrying around enemies in my head and people that I think the world needs to get rid of and just all of this negative complaining parts in, in my own mind, then the first thing for me to realize is this is my own world. This is my private world. So do I want a private world that's full of hatred and conflict and, and all this stuff? Or do I want a private world that I was born into and I will leave when I die? My private world, do I want one that's just my own set of personal challenges and supports? Or do I want to kind of consider myself a, a, a leaf in the wind and I'm stuck with all these people I don't like? Mm -hmm. So... For me, philosophically, it's important to be the owner of everything there is in your life. And while you may not approve of things, um, so things need to be changed. Mm -hmm. And so that's so we live in a world that is constantly undergoing change and needing to undergo change. And that's just the nature of reality. But to take something in as either an enemy or a horrible person or something, some other kind of part, well, that's a part of my own life, right? So it's a kind of a way to orient ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so when I feel challenged because someone did something that I found offensive, so that's a time for me to sit back and, wow, I really feel this offensiveness and I might feel anger and I might need to just kind of uh, center myself and settle myself and, and basically embrace everything that's happening, mm. whether it's in politics or in diseases or, you know, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. it, it's a matter of me. And that's, you know, where respect comes in is because I'm respecting my own reality. Okay, so is it a way of looking at your environment and your surroundings and your reality in in terms of a lot of this is wonderful, some of this is indifferent, and a few things I just really detest and they're difficult and I wish it was different. However, it is my experience. Everyone's on a different path and if I can affect change in those areas that I don't like, I'm going to go ahead and do that. If I can't affect some change there, I'm just going to be kind of okay with it and just accept it as my experience and just kind of press on. Is it is that what we're kind of talking about here? Well, that's, that's a generally good summary. Uh, what I would add is that... Um, if I, you know, there's this phrase that's come around for not too much, too, too much time that says, we'll just have to agree to disagree. So mm -hmm. that's kind of what it is. Oh, I see. Sure. So, yeah. so if there are people in my life that are challenging and I mean, who doesn't have this? Yes. If there are people in my, cause it can be anywhere in my life, like in politics or whatever. Mm -hmm. So if there are people in my life that I find challenging, um, first of all, of course, they're respected. They're part of my life. Mm -hmm. But if I, every time I think about them, my belly tightens and, and I have this stuff going on internally, the first thing I need to do is to step back from that and realize that this little uh, or not so little conflict that has arisen between the person I think I am and the person I think they are, well, that's all part of my own mental experience. Okay, 
that's part of my own ongoing um, process, moment in and moment out, mm-hmm. week in and week out. And there will always be something like that because we live in a world as it is designed uh, as something supportive at times and challenge, challenging at mm-hmm. times. So what we do internally with our experiences is so absolutely critical. Yes. Because that goes back to something I was saying earlier about the adrenal glands and getting stressed out and getting into a fight or flight state and then your digestion doesn't work and then some other illness comes along. So it's a whole domino effect. Yes, yes. And now we're getting into that connection between mind and body. And is that another area where maybe a more holistic approach pays more attention to the connection between mind and body than maybe traditional medicine might. And are you seeing things like uh, the maybe the body being in such a way that kind of creates, let's just use depression as an example, the body being in, in a certain state that might create depression and maybe the inverse is depression creating certain states and bodies? Is that, I mean, does that, is that, does that happen? Um. Uh, I'm not totally clear on the way you've just portrayed it. The first thing I would say is I wouldn't say the body creates mental states or the mind creates bodily states in in general. Now, of course, there are, there's the famous um, uh, hysterical things that were observed by Sigmund Freud where um, someone is actually creates something a physical symptom because of their disturbed mental state. Mm-hmm. If that's what it is, I haven't read that for decades. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, what my, I, so I don't kind of, I don't tend to look at origins of like, okay, what began this? Mm. Because everything is an ongoing flux. Everything is a, um, is an unfolding or evolving kind of a picture in every single person's life and in the universe. Everything is changing. And so things are always coming along. We might say, you know, the wind brings all kinds of weather. And so the idea in my approach is how to intervene to whatever is happening, how to be functional and effective and respectful to whatever is happening right now. So one of those, um, one of, and I don't know if this was implied um, as I meant it to be when I was speaking before about there's a conflict that I have um, negative feelings about something all of a sudden, and so I realize I need to step back. Um, that stepping back is part of meditation practice, mm-hmm. part of becoming quiet and becoming other than the person in me that reacted right? So if I can sink into that place and say, oh, well, Dr. Reisman had this negative reaction to this other person. So, you know, we're going to just kind of watch that and kind of let it evolve and settle out to something like that. So I think this is a really critical part of a healthy lifestyle. And so when people think about lifestyle, it's often, well, I should, you know, fix my diet and do more exercise. Lifestyle is so much more powerful than that if we understand it in its full expanse, in its full uh, comprehensive meaning. Mm -hmm. So lifestyle is how we deal with our emotions, our relationships. It has to do on the physical level also, but that's not the primary thing. 
many people will tell me, uh, well, I know what, when I talk to them about changing their diets, they say, well, I know what I should do. I just don't do it. Mm. So they have this idea in somewhere in their minds about what would be a more health promoting way to live, but they don't seem to do what they think they should do. Yes. And I think the big way to change that is to understand our lives as this miracle, which it is. And one of the ways to promote that perspective is to spend time in deep meditation so that when you are in that deep silent space and you get deeply rested, your adrenals get rested, your mind gets rested, everything settles out, um, then you come out of that with a fresh approach, mm-hmm. kind of like an infant or a one-year-old or a two-year-old. They're just running around and playing and, you know, everything's fascinating. They find a, a, a red ball and they think it's the greatest thing in the world. Mm-hmm. Well, we as adults can work ourselves back to that kind of fascination if we work on it. Mm. We can begin to see things freshly and begin to clear out our own storage of stress and negative feelings but it's a lifestyle. It's not something like we, okay, I'll do it today and I'll be fine forever. That's right. It's a life. It's a way of life. Yes. And are you, do you advocate for daily medication uh, more than once daily? What's the, what's your practice or what's, what would you recommend for people? Well, so here's the broken record again. I have to address a person where they are and what I will often do with someone when it seems appropriate is take them into a meditation for about 10 minutes in my office, guide them through it with their breathing and their body posture, guide them down. And after 10 minutes, I'll, you know, have them come out of it and I'll say, so how are you feeling? You say, wow, I feel much better. I feel really, really relaxed. And then I'll say, well, you realize that that took us about 10 minutes that you can do that by yourself without me easily. And if you would do that when you wake up, maybe before lunch, maybe once in the evening, day in and day out, it will change your life. Because what will happen, what will happen is in your consciousness, there will be this ongoing awareness that whatever stress you're in, it's only a matter of time before you get back into your deep meditative state. And that starts to become more and more prevalent in your mind. So when you're in some heated argument with someone or some, somebody cuts you off in traffic, whatever's going on that would upset you, you'll, be, you'll maybe begin to get upset and then you'll realize, yeah, but I know what my peaceful state is like and I know how it feels to be centered and I know how this doesn't have to throw me off so much. And mm-hmm. so it's such a wonderful thing to just build and build and build. And that's how we develop an appreciation and a celebration of life. Yeah. And do you have a, a guide of any kind you give your patients or a recommendation on how to guide yourself into a 10-minute meditation? Do you have, I know there's various meditation apps that are out there. How would you recommend to our listeners to kind of get started here? So, um, so what I do, I'll just kind of basically describe exactly what I do with a patient. I would have them sit in a comfortable chair, in a comfortable position, um, uh, but sitting up, not lying down, because lots of people just fall asleep, and that's the end of the meditation. <laughs> Which also has its advantages, but it does, it's different. Right, right. But actually, you know, before we go further, I should say that um, people don't, we do not get 
deeply rested necessarily overnight. You know, we go to sleep and then we start to process through all kinds of dream activity. And whether we're aware of our dreams or not, things are happening psychically overnight. And uh, that's and hopefully we get into a deep um, slow wave, I believe it is, form of sleep, a deeply restful, silent point in our sleep, which is great. But the great thing is that we, because we have control over our breathing, we have control over our choices, we can actually choose to utilize that deeply restful state to our benefit by doing it during the daytime. Hmm. Okay, so back to the back to the program. Um, <laughs> well, hang on just one second. Are you talking about a 20-minute nap halfway through the day? Is that what you mean? Absolutely not. Oh, that, okay. That's good. I mean, if, if you are not getting deeply rested at night and you get tired in the afternoon, what, what people call a power nap is a great idea. Okay, but that's not what you were referring to. Were you referring to a deep rest in meditation? Yes. Oh, got it. Okay. Yeah. Got it. This is um, consciously resting the mind. I see. I'm, yeah. I'm tracking. So the first, so I have you sit comfortably in your chair with your feet flat on the floor, flat on the ground, and I have you begin to bring your mind's awareness to your feet, so that you are and your eyes are closed and you're very comfortable, and you're bringing your mind's awareness to your feet. So you're fully aware of your feet and your consciousness is completely occupied by the presence of your feet. And so I'm repeating this enough so it's really getting in there. And I, and I have people begin with their toes. Feel your toes. Feel each one of your toes. Look for sensations in your toes. Have your um, toes be all that your concentration is focused on. And then move your concentration back into your heels. Feel your heels. Feel the presence of your heels. Look for sensation in your heels. Then move to the tops of your feet. And I'll speak more slowly, of course, in my office. Mm -hmm. Move to the tops of your feet. And then after the tops of your feet, become aware of the sensation of contact between the soles of your feet and the ground, because you can feel that. You can feel that physical contact. And focus your mind completely on that sensation of contact with the ground. And then I want you to imagine your feet being heavy and sinking down into the ground through that sensation. And then imagine, if you can, that your feet are melting down and becoming part of the ground. Then bring your awareness to your breathing. And as you breathe in, I want you to be relaxed and allow your belly to expand so that you're breathing down into the lower part of your belly. Mm. And as you breathe down into your belly, be aware of that sensation of breath energy down low in your belly, because you can feel that. You can feel that gentle pressure from breathing in. And once you feel that, then you're going to allow the breath to flow out on its own. So exhaling is a passive, simply relaxing thing, and you're allowing all the breath to go out on its own. And when all of the breath has gone out, then you begin to breathe down into your belly once again. So you're making this a continuous cycle, breathing down into the belly, feeling the sensation of breath energy down low in the belly, and then letting it go. And so you continue this cycle um, for a few moments staying um, completely aware of the cycle of breathing and having that be the focus of your attention. And then we, from there, 
I have you, um, as you're feeling that sensation of breath energy down low in the belly, imagine that you can send that energy down through the belly into the pelvis. And so with each breath in, you're breathing down through the belly into the pelvis. At this point, you might want to be aware of the sensation of contact with the chair. Where your buttocks meet the chair, you can feel that sensation. And so you're you are focusing your breath and sending it down through the belly, through the pelvis, right into the chair. Then we want to extend the breath energy through the belly, through the pelvis, and out into the thighs, and then down through the lower parts of the legs, down through the ankles, down through the feet. And then we want to recall that sensation of contact with the ground. And so we are now consciously sending our breath energy down through the belly, down through the pelvis, thighs, legs, down through the feet, through the soles of the three feet, and down deep into the earth. Sending each breath all the way down through the lower half of the body, down deep into the earth. And then, this is kind of like the final phase, imagine, let's imagine that we are sitting in the middle of the ocean. And we have tremendous bodies so that our feet are resting on the ocean floor and the ocean water comes up to our waist. And we're breathing downward, continuing the breath practice. And we are going to imagine that we can feel the sensation of the water in contact with our skin. And then we are going to imagine that we can absorb the minerals and nutrients from the water through our skin, by breathing through our skin. So, um, as I said, it goes more slowly than that. But mm -hmm. um, basically, I'm having a hard time visualizing that breathing through the skin, but I think if I were to actually... Oh, yeah. I mean, I was sort of tracking with you as you were talking through it. But, Good, yeah. And by the way, when you get to the ocean part, are you standing in the ocean or sitting on the water? You're sitting. Sitting on the water. You're still in a sitting position. Yeah. okay. And the water comes up to your waist. Yeah, okay. So you can make believe your chair is in the ocean. And sure. Your feet are on the, on the ocean floor. Yeah. But, the, but, the, but of course, the top of the ocean, the, the, the level of the water comes up to the place where you're breathing into your belly. Yes, I see. So from there down is, is in the water. Yep, got it. Yeah. So, so yeah, at the end of that, I will... Um, basically check in with the patient and it's almost all the time that uh, unless they're really they've come in in a really stressed out really place where they can't concentrate and they can't you know get focused but um generally it's highly effective and then once i've kind of sold it to them by showing them what it can do mm -hmm. then i tell them okay go out there and you know do it periodically mm -hmm. during the day so i think that gets to the question I was trying to ask earlier is the benefits of that physiological or is it primarily psychological is it primarily psychological and then that has a wear off effect on the body or is it a little bit of both so um the original form of holistic medicine on this planet was uh began about 5000 years ago in China and it began with um, meditation and then acupuncture. Mm. And if you see a Chinese, a traditional Chinese medicine doctor or someone who, who um, practices that form of medicine, 
um, that practitioner you're seeing does not understand mind over here and body over the there and mind does this to the body and body does this to the mind. There's none of that thinking okay. because I'm one person. I and see. I have a, you, we might say I have a psychological aspect, I have a physiological aspect, but it's not like I'm a bunch of separate things. Sure. So um, the effect of this meditation practice is on our entire being. It's on our energy flow uh, uh, vital energy or, or um, vital force energy, which is called qi in, in the Chinese medicine. So that is a vital force that is essential. As long as we are alive, we have it. Um, and that's what we are cultivating. We're cultivating the flow of that. We're cultivating the effectiveness of that as we um, relax and maintain posture. Posture is actually um, quite important because... In certain postures, the body's energy flow will be more effective. Mm. Um, we might be familiar with when we're slouching in our chair and our father says, sit up straight. Mm -hmm. So if you are sitting up straight and there's a slight curvature in your low back and your chest is, is up um, and your shoulders are relaxed, all these postural details... These are not just so you look like you're awake or so there's something cosmetic. They're all about energy flow through the body. And um, in very uh, comprehensive and effective meditation training, you will be um, monitored for your body position because that is just as important as everything else. The posture and the breathing are, are essentials to having this health-promoting energy flow of vital force through the body. Mm -hmm. So just by nature of my asking that question on is it physiological, psychological, a little bit of both, we've gotten some insight into my worldview then, haven't we? <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> yeah. um, which leads me to sauna and float. My understanding is you have... Um, oh, you have right. done some sauna. That's how you learned about me. And actually, yeah, it was through, you were in Pure Sweat Saunas Correct. and yeah. Float Studios email <laughs> newsletter. Yeah. And, um, and, uh, that was, that's how I found out about you. And then I saw your practice and reached out to you, but do you sauna on the regular? Um, I go through phases. Actu okay. Actually, um, I will get into a phase where I'll be in the sauna maybe three times a week and, um. Of course, this is an infrared sauna, and I want your um, listeners to know that um, this is one of the great, one example, and there are many of them, um, one example of the great progress that we as humans have made in attempting to deal with what it's like to live in an industrial environment rather than a pristine environment. So one of these has to do with detoxifying through the skin. And uh, many of us are familiar with a sauna. You can go to the YMCA and go into a steam room or go into a dry sauna. But in an infrared sauna, the infrared light is penetrating into your subcutaneous fat. And you may notice that as you are perspiring in an infrared sauna, your perspiration might be a little oily or slimy or something, because which is a great thing. It means that the toxins stored in your subcutaneous fat are coming out through your skin. And actually, something I mentioned earlier in this talk about toxic metals in our bodies, I've had some patients who have had high toxic metal levels and have chosen to do infrared sauna treatment and have gotten their metal levels down. 
Whoa. Now there are other ways to do it. There's this whole word chelation came about and very famously uh, uh, 60 or 70 years ago because of chelation therapy and basically a treatment that was originally for detoxifying lead from the body and then people had improvement in their cardiovascular symptoms. So Unfortunately, when something like that comes along, we have these two extremes where one extreme will say, well, that's a bunch of bunk and quackery and don't throw your money away. And the other end will say, oh my God, chelation. And I've had people call me up from from the other side of the state or out of state saying, oh, I have to come for chelation because they think it's the end all, be all, cure all. It's neither of those. Mm. But the awareness that toxic metals are a burden on the immune system is really important knowledge. So that's kind of the story on infrared saunas. But now that we've got into, uh, gotten into these wonderful technologies that help us cope with a, a basically a toxic environment, there's something that was invented in Russia decades ago called electrolymphatic therapy. Sometimes it's called assisted lymphatic therapy. So just like the detoxification through the skin, which doesn't happen as optimally as we might like, the same is true for the lymphatic system. The lymphatics, now everybody knows what lymphatics are. They just may, may not know that name because if you get a sore throat and you get this little knot on the side of your neck, that's a lymph gland that's mm. helping with the attack and the resolution of the infection in your throat. The lymphatics are key parts of the immune system around the whole body. And there, this in this technique, um, the... Well, I should back up. So the lymphatics are kind of a filtering system for the blood. And so whatever is not wanted in the blood will get fil filtered into the lymphatics and end up out of the body. However, they, as I was just saying, do not, the lymphatics don't function as optimally as we might like. And we get lymphatic congestion. We get congestion of lymphatics, which is, of course, a tremendous burden on the immune system because the immune system needs to be, fundamentally, it needs to be detoxified. So there's this wonderful technique with these instruments. They're like little wands. They kind of look like little flashlights. But they are instruments that are placed on different points of the body, just while the patient is lying comfortably on a massage table. And these instruments are placed on different parts of the body, and they literally open up the lymphatic congestion and drain out toxicity from the body. And uh, this is done, actually, the woman who used to be my office manager, when we learned about that, she, she went and got trained, and now she does it in my office. Oh, wow. And it's, um, I will tell you, it can be dramatic. Um, virtually all of our chronic illness patients um, do this. And actually, we've had some people who learned about her and just kind of, <laughs> they bypassed me and went straight to her. Oh, yeah? And... Um, <laughs> Yeah, and so they have they've gotten some really dramatic improvements in their health because as you can imagine, this basic source of detoxification in the body, when you open it up so it works much better, all kinds of great things happen. So I've never heard of it. Yeah, it's you know, like most of the things I'm saying on this program, it's just not well enough publicized and if if you ask your conventional medical doctors about it, the best you can hope for is for them to say, well, I don't know about that, but, but mm -hmm. it might be good. Who knows? Mm -hmm. But of course, there's all kinds of negative prejudices because if, if I didn't learn about it in medical school, it must not be any good. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so this is something where you do this in your practice. 
Oh yeah, we do it all the time. And did you did you mention the patient is lying down and then you place various things on on their body? So someone's been trained in lymphatic therapy. They know about the placement of the instruments and they know how to move the instruments along the course of the lymphatics through the body. And and not only is it therapeutic, it's also diagnostic because the practitioner doing it can feel where the resistance is, meaning feel where the lymphatic congestion is and focus on that part. Wow, fascinating. I might come and do that. I got a DNA test earlier this year and one of the, I have an MTHFR, what do you call it? Deficiency, I forget exactly, but my body doesn't detox yeah, it's, it's, it's optimally. A, that's mm. kind of the, that's my, that was my takeaway. Right. Um, because of that, would doing this treatment be beneficial for me? Um, I think that because you are a human living in this day and age, it would be beneficial to you. But yeah. I don't think the I don't I wouldn't think that the genetic variation makes a big big difference because most okay. of the burden in our on our immune system is not because of our genetics; it's because of the toxicity and, and exactly yeah you know, the burden from the environment and our lifestyles and everything. So doing something like this gets those things in our body kind of refreshed, opened up again, mm-hmm. working better. So this could be something where people could consider coming in, what, once a year just as a refresher or something? Like, do you recommend that? Well, actually, as I mentioned just a moment ago, the practitioner will have information about where the congestion is and how much of it is. And it doesn't necessarily reflect their um, state of health. Um, it stay it definitely speaks about their state of health on an internal basis, so to speak, but it's not necessarily going to um, be known about to the patient. Not, they won't necessarily have symptoms. And we've had people sure. who learned about it and said, I want to try that. And then they kept coming back because they felt so good. Wow, that is interesting. So um, one, the third item of these... Um, kind of enhancements of our systems to deal with the environment we live in after the um, infrared saunas and the lymphatic therapy. There's one other, which um, lots of people don't like hearing about, but I'm going to say it anyway. Um, Another part of the body that does not function as optimally as we might think is the colon. And um, colon hydrotherapy is a wonderfully safe and powerful, effective way to improve your health. I routinely send people, unless they say no, which just happens, uh, routinely send them to colon hydrotherapy. When I was first learning about health decades ago, one of the little quotes that I came across was, death begins in the colon. Hmm. And it's not that far-fetched because... If things are not making their way out of the body and they are getting, you know, things that were food before we ate them and then they became contents in our digestive tracts. And then we have to realize that the digestive tract is a dark, warm, moist chamber where all kinds of things undergo all kinds of biological breakdowns and breakdown products. And that lining of the digestive tract is designed to absorb foods. The only way we have solid bowel movements is because our colons absorb water. The only way we have solid bowel movements because our colons absorb water. Right. Ah, taking out the water. I see. And leaving solid material. Sure. Interesting. Right. So, but what that means 
And of course, if we go north of that into the small intestine, then what's happening is we have absorption of food and nutrients. And probably nutrients are absorbed from the colon as well. I don't know the details. But what I do know is that because this surface area lining the whole digestive tract, the intestines, is so critical for our survival because it nourishes our cells. Some people say that when you eat something, it's not really in your body yet. First, it has to get absorbed into your bloodstream. It's just Mm -hmm. going from one end to the other through a tube. Mm -hmm. So that mucosa, that lining, will absorb what's ever there. It doesn't doesn't like filter out, oh, we like this, we don't like that. So when things are sitting there for years and years and years and decaying, well, whatever the products of that decay are, they're going to get absorbed into the body too. Mm-hmm. So, and actually there's a, um, a rather well-known story, which is um, uh, of a woman who went, an adult woman who went for her first colon hydrotherapy session and out from her came the tiny shoe of a Barbie doll that she had swallowed when she was a child. Is that a true story? Uh-huh. Yeah. There's all kinds of there's all kinds of phenomenal things that wow. t- that take place. I actually I'll, I'll I'll mention a patient I saw which was really kind of striking and in a certain sense inspiring. Um I had a woman um probably in her late 30s early 40s but she had had a lot of trauma in her past and a, a lot of difficulty in her life in general and she was kind of in this general we might say chronic fatigue, immune deficiency state. And she would come into our office and she would lie on a couch for us to give her an IV because she was so weak. And we were kind of sustaining her for a while, nutritionally and, and energetically. And then I didn't see her for a while. I just got kind of sad and thought, yeah, I don't know what's become of her, but she can't be doing well. And about a year later, maybe a year and a half or two years later, I'm I'm in Whole Foods and I see her standing there and she looks really good. So I went up to her and I asked her, what, what, what's going on with you? How have you been? And she said, oh, I feel great. All of my symptoms are gone. I just, I just feel wonderful. So I said, well, what made the difference? How did this happen? She said, well, over the past year or two, I've had 200 sessions of colon hydrotherapy. Whoa. True story. That's what she said. Wow. So um, one of the, you know what I think the biggest danger in, in our lives is health-wise, that we have no idea what kinds of things, whether it's in our lymphatic congestion or in our intestines or in our subcutaneous fat, we have no idea how much stuff is accumulating in there that needs to be gotten out of the body. Yes. Yes. And to go back to what you're saying kind of at the beginning of our conversation, which is that there is so much more toxins and metals and all of these things present today than there was a hundred years ago, even what, 20 years ago. I mean, this is a different world. So we have to be changing with our changing environment. We have to be changing with it. I mean, it's, there's no other way, right? Thank you. The, the hydrotherapy, or I'm sorry, what did you call it? Colon hydrotherapy? Colon hydrotherapy. Yeah, uh, you know, I can imagine what's involved with that. It sounds like there's some water and some tubes and things like that. But what what is that? Is so you, you, you okay? Sp- it's really really simple, and most people are afraid of it. Then they do it, and it's like you know, it was nothing. 
you're lying on a comfortable table, just as if you're getting lymphatic therapy, and there is a small tube in your rectum, and warm water is flushing in, and who knows what is flushing out, Mm -hmm. in and out, and all you're doing is lying there comfortably. In and out, in and out, in and out. Flush water in, water out, water in, water out. How is that different from... What is it called? Like a like an enema? Enema, yeah. Is that what it is? No. Okay. Not, no, but that's a good question because a lot of people think that colon hydrotherapy sounds like, oh, you, you must have been constipated, so we'll have to flush you out a little bit. It's nothing like that because in an enema, you are putting a relatively small amount of fluid, like maybe 8, 16 ounces of fluid in, and you're precipitating a bowel movement. You're just putting in some fluid that mm-hmm. has volume to it, so it kind of stretches the um, the rectum mm-hmm. and causes a bowel movement. But that's entirely different from going from sending water throughout the entire length of the colon. So you have to understand oh, okay. that the colon begins at like your right hip, we might call it. It's not really your hip, but you know, the right lower corner of your belly, it comes up towards your ribs, crosses over to the other side underneath your heart, and then goes south, down, Mm. yeah, and then out, back to the center, and then out. Just one time. What do you mean? The colon. It's just one. There's a small intestine that's that's so long. Yeah, that's entirely right. Yeah, but that's the entire colon is that one trip from one side to the other. Mm. But that length of intestine is, of course, a tremendous amount of time for things to get lodged into crevices and just all kinds of things that are not to our health benefit. Interesting. Any, um, w- one of our kids is, um, uh, struggles with wetting his bed almost every night and he's eight years old now. And one of the things that, uh, Jamie had us try was, um, uh, I forget what it was, but it's 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 the thing that maybe there's like a some some I don't know fecal matter or something like in his colon. So would potentially trying colon hydrotherapy would that be worth trying for a a kind of a every night bedwetter? Um, I think I may have missed a link in what you just said. I understood about the bedwetting, and I understood that there may be some retained material in his mm-hmm. colon. And yeah, and she said that can sometimes cause bedwetting for whatever reason. Wow. Well, so this I would guess... be news to me. I can tell you that um, colon hydrotherapy is, is, as I say, it's harmless. And um, it's, you know, it, if you didn't need it, which is pretty rare, but if you didn't need it, it's certainly not going to do you any harm. Okay. But I've, I've never sent a patient with bedwetting problem for colon hydrotherapy. Okay. Do you do that at your office? No. Okay. Where no. do where do people in Nashville go for that? Um, now there probably are more places than I know of, but I know of three very good places. Um, um, one is um, a place called the Body Benefit, which is in Cool Springs. Mm-hmm. There are two women that work there who are absolutely excellent. Obviously, you want someone that is caring and experienced and knowledgeable and comforting. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is something to not just, you know, go on a street corner and say, give me some colon therapy. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then there's another place uh, out on Highway 100 um, and called In Harmony. Um, and by the way, both 
Body Benefit and In Harmony both have infrared saunas at their places. Oh, cool. Yep. Okay. Yeah, people who get wind of all this knowledge about how to strengthen your health, they mm-hmm. kind of jump into this stuff. Sure. Yep. And then there's a place, <laughs> I don't know why they gave it this name. So there's a place in Berry Hill um, that also does colon hydrotherapy, and they've decided to name their practice Release of Nashville. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's descriptive. I think that's... It has that yeah. going for it, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, anyway. Is that primarily what they do there, or do they do other stuff too? I believe... I don't know that much about... I've sent patients there, and they've come back with good reports, so it's certainly a good place. Yeah. Um, but I don't know what else they do, if anything. Yeah. Okay. But the body benefit sounds like the one closest to us in uh, Cool Springs. Mm-hmm. Um, and are you a advocate for, my understanding is there's uh full spectrum infrared sauna and then there's infrared saunas that maybe aren't full spectrum. And then there's traditional saunas. Um, we, we like to get one here, uh, because I did the one month unlimited with pure sweat and it was, it was awesome. I felt really good. Of course. There was great. a few times over that. Yeah that month that I was going out and, and they allowed me to go every day. So I went seven days a week. I got my money's worth out of it, <laughs> but there was a few, um, I, I, I go to CrossFit here five days a week and there was a few workouts where I just did better than I should have. And the only thing that was different was I was doing sauna that month mm. and I feel like sauna helped my performance and it just, I felt really good on it. So we like to get one here at some point. Are you an advocate for full spectrum infrared over traditional sauna? Oh, no comparison. Okay. Full spectrum infrared because of exactly what I explained earlier about the um, infrared light getting to the subcutaneous fat and releasing toxins. Otherwise, you're just sweating mm. out water. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and um, we already touched on the toxins and everything that's around. Um, did, did we, is there anything else that we should be aware of? to, um, I guess, mitigate these environmental influences on our bodies. I mean, I just think like, I think often of like the people that were on this land before we got here, you know, the Native Americans, Mm -hmm. and they were gathering from the land and they were active and they were outside a whole bunch and they were in forest and meadows and the rivers and, you know, that now you fast forward what we have now and everything's so built up. We're in our homes and then we're in our car and then we're back in our home again and we're eating, you know, God forbid, a lot of people are stopping on the way home and eating something and drinking sodas and, oh man, and just the, the over, I guess, over abundance, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Just the, um, the exorbitant amount of these influences on our body. And yet we're basically the same human, right? I mean, by and large. So we have to, it's not like our bodies are naturally evolving to complement all these things unless, unless they are. I don't think they're evolving quite fast enough. Sure. (laughs) So we talked about sauna and some other things. Is there other things that we should be paying attention to aside from just eating as clean as, as, as possible? Um, well, so everything you just described emphasizes the importance of being in nature because there is a, um, of course, we don't want to separate the mind from the body, but there's a psychological impact from being in nature. It's mm-hmm. so, so critical. Our whole system, body-mind system, 
knows nature. It's what we are made of is nature. Um, so that's why so much of um, um, unconventional or non-conventional medicine is based on giving people dietary changes and nutritional supplements and herbs and enzymes and vitamins, all these different substances, because they are substances that speak the same language as the body. Mm. And so the body knows what nature is and exposure to nature, being out in nature is just tremendously valuable to mm-hmm. us both psychologically and physiologically. Mm-hmm. Um, can I ask you about this, the studies that are going on right now at Johns Hopkins, NYU? I mean, there's a lot of studies that are going on right now showing the benefits of psychedelics from psilocybin, from the mushrooms we talked about earlier. Mm. Um, and I think they're doing tests on MDMA and some of these other to help with things like anxiety and depression and addiction and those types of things. Mm-hmm. Have you read uh, Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind? I he got into. I know it. of the book. I have not read it. Okay. And I haven't really been studying the uses of these um, psychoactive substances for those purposes. Now, I know that... Um, Historically, uh, there was a famous uh, psychiatrist named Stanislav Grof, G-R-O-F, and I believe he was in California, and he began doing something called LSD psychotherapy. And then LSD became outlawed, and so he moved his practice into what was what he called holotropic breathwork. And basically by having the right environment and the right monitoring of powerful breathing exercises, people can get into the kind of altered states in order to access um, their hidden traumas. And so he began doing that and was no longer, was getting great results Mm -hmm. without the use of the substances. Mm -hmm. So... um, I suppose I'm not coming from lots of knowledge or experience, but if I had to kind of take a shot from the hip, I would say that there are ways of people getting in touch with their, quote, inner demons or their difficulties um, that are, I think, very powerful and severely underutilized. Um, in like a retreat format where there's mm-hmm. a really supportive, respectful group and things are being done so that people feel safe and they feel open and they start to get in touch with these feelings that have been um, haunting them for years. Yes. And I think that anything you can do with a psychedelic substance, you can also do without a psychedelic substance. Oh, interesting. That's what I believe. Yeah. Um, and... Um, but, you know, I'm not saying that it's a bad thing and it, sure. may, it may benefit people in certain situations. Yeah. Um, but something, um, not to jump topics, but something came to my mind that I have to include back to this whole, Please. Ha, back to this whole idea about diet. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a famous oncologist in New York City named Nicholas Gonzalez, wonderful man. He, um... He uh, studied different approaches to cancer, especially um, the one uh, that was being used by actually a dentist in Texas many, many, many years ago named William Donald Kelly. So Dr. Gonzalez, of course, a trained oncologist, um, studied this and just did a lot of research and study. And one of the 
and he helped many, many, many people. One of the major things that he used was high doses of pancreatic enzymes. Now, the pancreas makes enzymes for us to digest our food. We, have, we need a pancreas because that's where we get our enzymes, which breaks down our food, allows our food to be absorbed and utilized by our body. So it's a fairly essential organ. Now, um, a Dr. Beard, who was an embryologist, probably around the turn of the century, meaning 1900, I don't know exactly when, but he did this really fascinating research to find out what stops a fetus from growing so fast in the mother. So something has to slow down that growth. Hmm. And what he found is that when the fetus has a viable pancreas and begins producing pancreatic enzymes, that's when the fetus stops its growth. That's when the fetus begins to, to stop its... Because in the beginning, the fetus is growing... The embryo is growing like crazy. It's doubling its size. So over a period of nine months, it can't keep growing that fast. It'll Interesting. Be big, I didn't know that. It'll be bigger than its mother. So, <laughs> so, um, so the critical takeaway from this research of Dr. Beard, who was a great embryologist, is that he, he found that pancreatic enzymes were so critical to, um, to stopping that. So fast forward to Dr. Gonzalez. He found that um, the role of pancreatic enzymes in the body is more essential than we realize because it's not just about digesting food. Actually, cancer cells in their ingenuity and desire to stay alive and basically take over, they create a coating around them that basically cloaks them from the immune system. Now, when we are younger and healthier, uh, we are all making cancer cells. That's just a part of some cells that they don't die properly, so to speak, and they become cancer cells. But the immune system identifies them and knocks them out. However, th that coating on the cancer cell basically gets stripped away by pancreatic enzymes in order to expose the cell to the immune system, mm. which means that if you have an adequate supply of pancreatic enzymes, then your cancer cells that you're making are going to get exposed and obliterated. But the opposite is true. And if you eat a very high-protein diet that's consuming all of your pancreatic enzymes, then that coating on the cancer cells you make will not be removed. Oh, that's interesting. And my concern and kind of a prediction is that when people are eating primarily an animal diet, year in and year out, year in and year out, eventually they are depleting the supply of pancreatic enzymes and mm -hmm. setting themselves up for cancer. Interesting. And if you continue, say in my case, to eat meat, but then complement with a bunch of greens, does that replace the pancreatic enzymes? No, I think there's nothing. I mean, you can, of course, take pancreatic enzyme supplements. And, okay. And one thing that Dr. Gonzalez did is put people on 
loads of pancreatic enzymes, and mm-hmm. that was part of the success of his of his uh, approach. Mm-hmm. Um, he he did a lot more with with the chemistry of the body, but that was kind of a thing he was famous for: is using high doses of pancreatic enzymes. But see, that to me relates back to this. Um, uh, idea of plants versus animals. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not a matter of, I mean, we, as I said, we can take pancreatic enzyme or other types of enzyme supplements. Yep. But um, in the long run, of course, uh, we want to be sparing and allowing our um, pancreas organ to continue to make all the enzymes and have enough left over from digesting our food yes. to also um, expose cancer cells. Yes. And of course, fasting has a history of thousands of years of helping people. And I don't know how much of this is the reason, but sparing all those pancreatic enzymes to kind of clean house can't be too far from the answer. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I have heard about fasting and, and the benefits there with certainly battling cancer or, or, or getting in front of it to, to begin with. Tim Ferriss has talked a fair bit about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and just so I understand it properly, when you eat meat, that causes your pancreatic en- enzymes to process that in a way that is not necessary when, say, you're eating greens. Exactly. Okay. Leaving those enzymes more available for doing things like fighting cancer cells. Perfect. Interesting. I'm glad you brought that up. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> that was not on my radar. <laughs> yeah. um, I'll get you out of here soon, but I'm curious with your practice and, 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 and the amount of time that you've been in this, by the way, which we didn't touch on it much, but you've been doing this a long, long time. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you're coming up on doing this for 20 years in 2021. Is that right? You got into this in 1991-ish? 30. What, do I have my math wrong? Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, wow. 30 yeah. years. So right. yeah. you, you've been at this a long, long time. Mm-hmm. And um, it, clearly it's something that, uh, well, just by nature of doing it for 30 years, you'd think you'd know something about it. But also it's clear that you know the subject matter and are interested in it, um, which I commend and admire. Is there particular areas right now that you're interested in, fascinated by, learning about, um you know, as in your general practice, I'm just curious what uh, what's got you kind of particularly interested or excited these days. So, um, one of the reasons that the past thirty years have been so consistently stimulating and and enjoyable for me is that, as you probably know, as everyone must know, in the past few decades, there's been an explosion of knowledge about alternative approaches to healing. Some of them are from ancient times and some of them are from modern science, but we've been finding, we meaning the world of science and healing, have been just un- <clears throat> uncovering all kinds of great stuff. And so this has been an ongoing education for me. Sometimes a patient will have read ups on, on a particular topic that they know so much that they'll be telling me some things I didn't know. So all of that to say that um, I am continuously um, having a wonderful time meeting new people with every type of illness. So in my practice, we pretty much see anyone who does not need emergency care Mm. because the 
thread that runs through all our patient population is that they are looking for something that shows them options, something that shows them what they haven't learned about from their conventional medical doctors. Um, if they've went on, gone online, which pretty much everyone does these days, and you know, studied WebMD or whatever, well, we don't know how much of that is up to date or valid. And so they will come for clarification about things they've found. They'll come, but it'll, the bottom line is it's every illness you can imagine, whether it's a skin problem, a psychiatric problem, a female problem, a cancer, autoimmune, autoimmune disease. It's everything because every single illness that I know of um, merits from an expansion of what people are learning from conventional sources. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. where in an ideal world, there would be all kinds of media coverage of things that people generally don't know about. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one can, one can wish, right? <laughs> yeah, it's it's one of the things that seemed kind of weird with the COVID situation is how little we heard about some of the other things that seemed to be working. That was a, you know, you just didn't hear about it in the news. Yeah, do you so, do you are you referring to anything in particular? Um, I'm thinking of um, uh, vitamin C and or, I'm sorry D mm-hmm. and the benefits of. Um, being in the sun, mm-hmm. zinc, having, you know, some, making sure your zinc levels are, are decent. And this, I don't know a lot about, but I heard, I have heard some talk about maybe the vitamin D um, issue is one of the differences in how it was affecting uh, African-Americans versus white people. Because my understanding is that a black person's skin is sort of the melatonin is built in certain in a certain way to handle more sunlight, which means if you give me and say Travis Lester, my black friend, the same amount of sunlight, I'm going to wind up with a little bit more vitamin D than he is. Mm. And so, is that one of the reasons it seems to be affecting the African American community more than um, than white folk? I don't know, but yeah, there was definitely you know, but you don't hear about that, you know, and even COVID aside. Um, I think that's why I'm so fascinated when I run into someone with a practice like yours. I mean, there's so much here that I didn't know anything about. So right. I'm so glad you you're asking all these great questions. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, thank you for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. Thank you for inviting yeah, me. This was a privilege, and it was great to meet you. And um, um, keep smiling out of your eyes. <laughs> I hope you. that kind of look in your eyes never dulls. Thank you so um, much. Thank keep having these great interviews. Yeah, yeah, I definitely will. But um yeah, oh, uh Andrew, what is his website? Let's make sure to mention that. What's your website? Mind and mindbodymedicalcenter.com. Okay, mindbodymedicalcenter.com. And uh, obviously, if someone can drive to or fly into your practice um, here in the Nashville area, it's Brentwood, um, the, they can get assistance there. Otherwise, they can check out your website and then see what you're doing and then see if there's someone in their local community that can offer some of the things that you're doing as well. Exactly. Um, any other ways that we should tell people to, to, to um, find out about some of the things you're offering or is the website the best one? Well, starting with the website is a great way to go. And there are, um, well, so, you know, as this kind of 
broader or um, kind of unconventional form of medicine has had different titles over the years. It used to be alternative medicine, mm-hmm. complementary medicine, holistic medicine, functional medicine, integrative medicine. Mm-hmm. But they're all kind of the same approach of um, going into the mind-body unity, the uh, how the body works biochemically and nutritionally and lifestyle changes and all kinds of important things. Well, I mention all that because every one of those names you can Google and you can find people who do functional medicine or mm-hmm. people who do integrative medicine. But, you know, it, it, though it's, it's wonderful that there's so much of an explosion of that these days. It's so, so needed. Yeah, totally agree. Dr. Reisman, thank you again very much. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.